the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Throughout All Ages 1530 Apologetics, where the conversation always gives you a foundation that is built on biblical principles so you can intellectually and critically learn to weigh out decisions about life with truth, facts, contradictions, and the reality we live in, and history. Host Joe Gaona covers topics like apologetics, worldviews, contemporary culture, and the Word of God to help you articulate a defense for how you live your Christian life. See how you can get involved in support Throughout All Ages 1530 Apologetics by visiting ThroughoutAllAgesMinistries.com. That's ThroughoutAllAgesMinistries.com. Joe, where is that magnifying glass? How you doing today? This is Joe Gaona with 1530 Apologetics Throughout All Ages. And we're here to intellectually think about arguments and see if it makes sense to weigh it out with truth on a scale as we would use history, science, philosophy, and the world that we live in. And does your worldview make sense? Can it hold up to scrutiny? for contradictions that are in your worldview. Well, today we are on the second part of talking about how the Bible got translated and where did it come from. And a lot of historians say that Constantine never got baptized until he was at his deathbed. And that's precarious because we know back then that Christians, as soon as they knew who they believed in as Jesus Christ, as Lord, that they would get baptized. But we find that Constantine never got baptized until he was on his deathbed. And we're told that he always wanted to be baptized at the Jordan, but now he fell ill And he was baptized at his deathbed by Eusebius of Nicomedia. Constantine had ruled for 31 years longer than any emperor since Augustus. That was 337 AD. Constantine, as he won the battle and he became emperor of Rome, And it was during this time, he wanted to build a city, a new Rome. And so he went to the old Byzantine land and he built Constantinople there. And from there on, it was called the new Rome of Constantine the Great. That in 325, we end up getting the council that needed to take place because there was Athanasius, I mean, excuse me, there was Arius, who was saying that Jesus was a created being. And it was becoming so strong within the community, within Rome itself. They needed to have a council on this, the first council of Nicaea. The Roman Emperor Constantine the Great 
uh, had this council go on. And in this council, there was over 318 attendants. And out of the 318, so, you know, there's anywhere from 250 to 318. But what happens is when they voted on the Arians' creed that Jesus was a created being, there was only two that voted for that. So we see that it upheld uh, not that Constantine, like a lot of people like to say, that somehow Constantine made up this uh, doctrine, but they were actually coming to the table of the council to vote um, to make sure everyone was on the same agreement. Now, what's neat about this is as they were voting on this, you had Ambrosia already in the picture. You had Augustine uh, coming in the picture. So we find in this Council of Nicaea that Athanasius was there. But he wasn't a pope, he wasn't a bishop, but he was actually a deacon and an assistant of Bishop Alexander of Alexandria. And it was here that he got to see the process take place. And we're told that three years after this council, as the Arians uh, still wanted to be multiplied within the communities of the church, that Athanasius became the mentor or succeeded Alexandria. And it's here that he was known as Athanasius Contra Mundum, which is in Latin is Athanasius against the world, because it seemed like the whole world was against him on this creed about Jesus being the Son of God, never born, has always been. So we know that as Constantine died in around 337 AD. We find that the death of Constantine, four years later, we have Jerome being born in Striden, Dalmatia. Jerome, we know, probably had one or three siblings, that his father was a Catholic with financial means, uh, had the money to send him to school. Now, during this time, as Jerome was born in 340 AD, somewhere around there, you had Athanasius uh, being around from 293 to 373 AD. You had Ambrose being around. As a matter of fact, Ambrose was born at 339 AD. So that was a couple years after Constantine had died. But we find that a young man named Augustine uh, was actually out living his life, uh, sowing his seed any way he wanted to, uh, just the pleasures of life. And as he got older, he heard a sermon by Ambrose. And when he heard that sermon, and then he heard a second one, um, it began to plant the seed of Christianity. Ambrose played a major role and God using him for Augustine to come into the faith. And Augustine was born in 354 AD and died around 430 AD. But I want us to talk about Jerome here. It's 340 AD. He was born at 12 years old. His parents send him to Rome to get educated with the best Latin teachers. And during this time, he became very fluent in Latin, and he started even learning 
Greek. He started to study grammar, philosophy, and the rhetoric of, of how to speak. Now, we know that he wasn't a Christian at this time. He was just getting educated. He grew up with Christian parents. So we know that Jerome, when he would feel guilty or start thinking about life, he would go to the catacombs, the tombs of the old saints. But it's there he would have images of what darkness looked like, of what hell would be like, and that he was on his way there if he didn't turn to Christ. And we find by the 18 years old that Jerome was baptized around 358 AD. So now he's about 18 years old. And he was baptized in Rome by Pope Liberius. Of course, him being baptized at 18 years old, even though his father was a Catholic, it wasn't pushed as much during the first four centuries or the first five centuries, should I say, that infants needed to be baptized. Although Rome and Catholicism practice somewhat uh, infant baptism, they always agreed it was during the life of a man that he had to commit to Jesus Christ. Although they would baptize those who wanted to be baptized as infants, it was nothing they pushed until um, Augustine came around, around 400 AD, that infant baptism uh, began to get very serious within the 5th century and is now practiced even up into the Vatican II in 1962, requiring um, infant baptism now. And the Vatican II from 1962 to 1965. But during Jerome's time, he didn't get baptized till he was 18 years old. Jerome loved to get educated. He had the best teachers that money could provide. And Jerome was obsessed and captivated with the Roman classic writers. There was a man named uh, Elias Donatus, who was a famous Roman grammarian. And it's one of the teachers that actually taught Jerome in his day. Now, Jerome began to build a library as he began to be fluent in Latin and Greek. He began to be a civil servant, but by 370 AD, he left that and he returned to Rome. He returned to Italy and there he spent some time with Aquilia, where he lived in a monastic community. He had a friend named Rufinius. He was a monk. We're told that Jerome took interest in monasticism, in ascetics. And he had a friend, Rufinus, who was a monk, who was renowned for his translation of Greek works. Jerome became friends with Rufinus. During his stay here, we're told that Jerome became very ill, severely ill, and he had a dream, and the Lord spoke to him and said, you're not a Christian, because, you know, he had just got baptized a few years earlier. He's He's in this monastic community. He's learning how to now scribe, how to write manuscripts. And he's in there and all of a sudden he gets ill and he has this dream and the Lord is speaking to him. And he says, you're not a Christian, you're a Caesarian. Your heart is set for the classic writers. It's not set for Christendom. And from that point on, it was a changing moment for Jerome. 
From here on out, he would engulf himself, not in the classic writings, but in the Word of God, the written Word. And he began to have a love of Scripture and is now part and full of his life. And it's now that Jerome, you can see, begins to have a love for Scripture. It's not long after his experience in the dream that Jerome became a hermit. He went out into the desert, and there he began to learn Greek even more. And so Jerome was developing these skills as a translator, uh, not knowing still. You got to remember, for the first 40 years of Jerome's life, we don't really see anything that's happening. But lo and behold, God is building a man who would begin to write manuscripts and learn different languages. And he would become prominent in the Christian faith. Now we know as Jerome went back to Antioch and he was there uh, for a few years, there was this uh, schism that was happening in the Christian community between the two bishops, Miletus and Paulinus. Paulinus was supposed to be the bishop of Antioch, but there are those who were saying, no, Miletus is the bishop. 377 AD, Paulinus, the bishop of Antioch, wanted to ordain him as a presbyter. But Jerome agreed on the conditions that he'd be allowed to continue his monastic interests, and that he would never be forced to take a priestly position of duties. Jerome spent the next three years in intensive study of the scriptures. Now, it's during this time in 377 AD, that after the Council of Nicaea, we have the Edict of Milan already took place where they wouldn't persecute the Christians. But then we have Theodosius, the, the great, the Roman Empire, and we have the Edict of Thessalonica. And this happened at AD 380. They made Christianity a state religion at this time. It was not only the Edict of Milan which said you couldn't persecute them, but it was actually the Edict of Thessalonica which says that Christianity is now the state religion of Rome. In 393 AD, he actually banned the pagan rituals of the Olympic Games. This is Joe. With 1530 Apologetics, we are talking about how the Bible got translated. I hope you stay with us to the second part. Don't go away because there is much more to come with Throughout All Ages 1530 Apologetics on K-Praise. Welcome back to Throughout All Ages 1530 Apologetics. And now, here's your host, Joe Gaona on K-Praise. How you doing? This is Joe with Throughout All Ages 1530 Apologetics, and we appreciate you staying here for the second half as we talk about how the Bible got translated throughout history. We're talking about Jerome. Jerome had just got done being ordained, and then we find in around 382 that Paulinus the Bishop of Antioch and Jerome go back to Rome. And it's here that they seek support from the Bishop, the Pope, Damasus I, who really agreed with Paulinus that he should be the 
bishop of Antioch. But those in Antioch, they, they did not agree. And so Paulinus did not have a church to go to, but eventually he goes back to Antioch. Now, as Jerome stays in Rome, things are now starting to get uh, serious as he's now, he's in his late 30s, uh, getting up to 40 years old. And he finds favor with Pope Damasus I, who made him his secretary. And it's during this time that Jerome meets um, Paula. Paula was a noble lady who had money to be able to have him uh, do many manuscripts of different languages during that time. But also while he was in Rome, Jerome during this time, he began to call out the moral sins of of many people of the church and Jerome found himself a lot of Roman clergy being mad at him because he's talking about their how lax they are or how corrupt they are and so they went against him and even some tension between Ambrose and Augustine is starting to build up with Jerome, because Jerome always said uh, what he felt. 382-383, that Pope Damasus I, he now commissions St. Jerome to replace the Vitas Latina with a Latin translation of the Bible. And of course, they would call that the Vulgate. And the Vulgate would now be transferring the language of the four Gospels from Greek to Latin, from the east side that spoke Greek to more of a Latin language, that it took about 20 years for Jerome to write this Vulgate. Vulgate means the common people, vulgar. That's what Vulgate means. It's for the common people, uh, commonly used. It's the Vulgate's definition. Jerome writes the four Gospels and he uses as many of the Greek manuscripts that are around there that he could use, he begins to translate it into Latin so they can have a, a Bible in Latin. There were also uh, other translations out there. The Peshitta was out there, the Syriac, but he actually went back to some of these Greek writings and he took the Vetus Latina, which is the old Latin, and he began to um, translate the Gospels. And the goal was to produce a standard authoritative translation. And of course, just like every translation that someone does, there were those who liked it and there were many who disliked it, didn't like what was happening with it. That in 384, Pope Damasus I dies. And because the way Jerome is in Rome, he didn't have much favor after that. As a matter of fact, the the new pope um, didn't really get along with Jerome. And so that made, that made things worse for Jerome. And so with all the constant uh, bickering that Jerome did with the people around him, calling them out, um, he finally left Rome and he went to Bethlehem. And it's here that he dug in in Bethlehem and he began to finish off the Vulgate. We are told by 405 AD he completed the Vulgate and the Old Testament. Instead of going back to the Septuagint, like most of the church fathers were reading, Jerome wanted to go back into the Hebrew and he had learned Hebrew 
and so he went back to the Hebrew and he wrote the Old Testament from translated from the Hebrew language. Now the, the they now this seeded the path for the Protestants. Because when they saw Jerome, when we can look at history and see Jerome now going back to the Hebrews, it made us now with this Latin writing, we didn't go back to the Latin. We actually wanted to go back, as you will see, we wanted to go back to the Greek language to make sure we had a good translation. So by 510 AD, there was other scholars who completed the Vulgate in its full capacity. And this Vulgate, this Bible of Latin, it superseded all other uh, Bibles for the next thousand years. So we know at the Council of Trip in 1545 AD, they affirmed the Vulgate translation as authoritative for the text of the Roman Catholic Scriptures and that lasted all the way until around um, what was it, 1964, 1965? But even in 600 AD, so 200 years, uh, we find that it was the only restricted language that the Bible could be written in, in the Latin language. And they refused, the Catholic Church refused to allow the scriptures be available in any other language. And those who were in possession of non-Latin scripture would be executed. And one of the reasonings for that is they begin to say that the ignorant were writing the Bible and they didn't like the way they translated it at times because they would go against their empowerment. And so um, they got very rigorous on, on just having the Latin Bible uh, to the public people. By 419 AD, Jerome dies, and now God needs to raise up another man of God that can continue the work of the translations. And it's here that we'll get into Wycliffe around 1330 AD. Until then, thank you guys for being a part of this. We'll see you next week. I'd like to introduce myself to you. This is Joe with Throughout All Ages 1530 Apologetics. And what we do is we go out into high schools, public high schools, and we ask them the question, what is your world view? You see, we want these students before they get into college, their first year in college, to intellectually think about arguments of why they live here, how they live here, how they got here, and what are they doing here? What is their purpose here on this earth? I think those are four crucial questions for how we live our lives. How did we get here? What are we doing here? How we ought to live our lives? And where are we going when we die? No matter what's said about those four arguments, this has been the talk for over four millennia talking about these questions. And what I do is when I go into these public high schools, it is my job to go in there and let them ask questions of what they believe in and weigh them out and see if they make sense.
And I would ask you, if you want to be a part of, throughout all ages, 1530 apologetics, to be able to get me from classroom to classroom, from high school to high school, that you can go to my website and be a partner with us as we move forward. One of the things we like to talk about them is about the three camps of apologetics. As you know, apologetics means that we are to defend our faith. 1 Peter 3.15, always be ready to give an answer for what we believe in. And that word answered would mean to give a defense for what we believe in. And so when we go into these high school campuses, our goal is to hit all around United States. And what we talk about is the evidentialist argument, the classical argument, and the presupposition. This gives us three ways in order to come out with an understanding of why you live the world that you live in. You know, every teenage son or daughter no matter if they've been an atheist all their lives or been a Christian or whatever worldview they're in, are asking these hard questions. We live in an era where it's very intellectual. And so we come in as 1530 apologetics and give them these answers. And we talk about worldviews and why worldviews matter and why definitions matter. So if you want to be a part of this, we would love to see you be a partner with us as we take on the world on worldviews. This is Joe with 1530 Apologetics with Throughout All Ages, and we'll see you. That's a take, and this has been Throughout All Ages 1530 Apologetics. You can learn more about your host, Joe Gaona, how to support and get involved with 1530 Apologetics by visiting throughoutallagesministries.com. That's throughoutallagesministries.com. 1530 Apologetics is vigorously setting the pace to give easy answers to hard questions in the culture we live in. So be sure to join Joe at this same time next week for more biblical principles to help you intellectually and critically learn to weigh out decisions about life with truth, facts, contradictions, the reality we live in, and history. This has been Throughout All Ages 1530 Apologetics on K-Praise.